hey, it's good to see you. Yeah. This yeah. was great to uh, be back here at the Haga Church, of course, as always. Mm. We're uh, standing here with this fabulous Marcuson organ um, from the 1860s, which is really a special instrument that I've come mm. to know in the last few years. And um, I was really thrilled to, to come back and play this program on it, in particular mm. with uh, music of Mendelssohn and Mozart list, mm. especially the list Fantasy and Fugue on the on the Adnos. And it's a very special experience. Um, the organ is in its original state, so you have no possibility, like on a modern organ, to you know, set your registrations in advance and just hit a button and have everything there at the, you know, the touch of a fingertip. Here, you really have to spend a lot of time, first of all, determining the registrations and to determine them in a way which is uh, thoughtful of your two human hands that will be on the two sides, you know, assisting you with, with the stops, and then, of course, rehearsing that with the registrants. So I actually came, when I knew I would be playing a program including the list Adnos here in, um, let's say, by August, I actually made a special trip here after some concerts in Germany, and I just came for two days. I spent a little time with the organ when it was free. I got, wrote, had my computer you know, by my side and wrote in all the registrations into a Word document, just you know, step by step by step. I later transferred them into the score. I came back here. Um, double-checked everything, changed a lot of things because your ears adjust and you hear things differently even a few months later. And then I had two wonderful um, registrants, two stop pullers, um, who were wonderful last night to come and kind of hang out with me in the organ law for about three hours last night <laughs> as we rehearsed all the, the really complex choreography of making a piece like that happen on an organ, on a substantial organ like this and in a very complex score. Mm. where you have to truly orchestrate mm. the piece. Mm. So, yeah, it was a wonderful experience, but mm. uh, it's nice when you're then performing it and the really hard sections go well with, for what they're doing. You can kind of, you know, glance over and give them a smile and they realize, mm. yeah, got mm. it right. You know, mm. that really worked. <laughs> so, because yeah. it was a lot of work for them. Mm. What they had to do, mm. you know, pulling these stops uh, almost without any break <laughs> for 30 minutes. Yeah. And you, you mentioned choreography. I think that's really interesting because when you sit up here watching someone like you prepare, it is a choreography. Yeah, absolutely. You're actually dancing. That's right. And you have to, at every organ, you have to invent a new choreography. That's such an important part of it. You can never just assume that if you've learned that particular dance, that particular piece, one way that it's going to work in every situation. So. Um, for example, this organ, it also has a very particular tonal identity. The way that the ensemble is constructed is, is unique. It's a, um, a massively dark organ, uh, almost guttural and, and rich and um, very, very textural. But you have to be very thoughtful in the way that you build the organ up and down mm. and how you balance it. And, um, that takes a lot of time to get used to, and it means that you also end up playing the piece quite differently than you would on, especially modern organs, mm. um, which is to be expected, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a particular situation. So you have to also relearn the, you know, the, let's say the order of the keyboards, the octaves in which you're playing. Um, on this organ, a lot of times you're playing beautiful four foot stops an octave lower. You're playing 16 foot stops an octave higher. You play the pedal part an octave lower, which is very lucky, the whole central part of the piece. 
is basically written for an eight, a 16 foot pedal, but it's in the high octave. So you can take a beautiful eight foot cello like you have here and play that an octave lower and have a wonderful orchestral string line in the bass, etc., etc. So, so why don't we see, I mean, in your repertoire list, you could say list. Yeah, right. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. it should say list Marcuson. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a specific piece. It, it, it really is. That's right. It, it takes on a life of its own. Mm. On, on, on each new instrument, and this this particular organ, you know, is is built within a decade of mm. the composition of that work. Mm. So it's you see many reference points in this, you know, Danish classical Danish Romantic organ to the those active organ builders in Germany at this time. Mm. You know, that were the sort of sound qualities that this would have had exposure to. Mm. And then, of course, it has its its unique accent. But um, especially the, the kind of feeble quality of the reeds, mm. um, they're very vulnerable mm. sounding, I mm. find. And that, mm. especially in the soft part of the piece, it's very, very poetic, mm. very, very charming. I actually heard it in the Mozart as well. I thought you had really nice, uh, not the reeds, but the, the, the soft flutes. That's right, and the strings. The they're strings. Really beautiful. Really beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And that was really something you don't hear too often here, that you combine the dyna dynamics like that to have yeah a really brittle tonal quality combined with this massive yeah just earthquake exactly right you get you can have this tremendously horizontal uh wall of sound or on the other hand you can also find very very uh wispy uh yeah f uh, vulnerable almost empty or um yeah, very, very vertical sonorities as well, but mm. at the very, very soft dynamic level. Mm. It's really uh, mm. splendid sounds. Mm. So just, we've been having discussions this week over this podcast, uh, different topics uh, from, from actually how to, to prepare and how to also f deal with failure, for example. It's mm -hmm. been really interesting to, to talk to people who, from the outside, we consider heroes and absolute masters, and and we sort of forget sometimes that behind all this, this uh, concert, concert and performance, there's so much work and so much yeah. also right. preparing and and discovering and and going the wrong path and redoing yeah, and everything. Absolutely. So, would you care to expand on that? That's some of the those are some of the best lessons you can learn are through the things that don't go well and. Uh, um, it can be as, as simple as, oops, I messed up that little passage in a piece. I should have looked at that, right? Or, ah, I, need, I always know I need to look at that and I forgot to look at it. You know, it, it can be that simple or it's, um, or of course it can be something much, 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 you know, bigger, uh, you know, habits or things like that. But the, um, no, the process of preparing a recital, uh, there's no such thing as an easy recital to play. There really isn't. Um, it, such a thing doesn't exist. It's even the what seems like the simplest task under pressure becomes complicated. Um, we don't have the same access, I think, to all our presence of mind. We we have to go into a new place. At least for for me, I have to go into a new place when I perform, and lots of things become automatic and sometimes a little bit impetuous in a good way. Um, that's part of the risk of performing. Um, and then you, you'll know kind of how much mental capacity you actually have the minute you play the first chord. Is this one of those days when I can really concentrate and really be aware and in the moment of what I'm doing and have a lot of presence of mind? Or is this a day where I really just have to let whatever it is that takes over, take over? 
and you just have to let the the uh, p power steering kind of drive you. You know, mm. it's um, cruise control. Mm. But that's why we practice. Mm. We practice so that in any circumstance, you have a good possibility to do something well. So depending on where you are on that day and what that performance experience is like, you have a, a, a sort of security blanket that you know, I know this music that well, so well, that even if I'm a basket case and for some reason I'm terribly nervous today for who knows why, um, that I'll be able to get through this. Mm. So I think the most important thing for concert preparation um, is just that. It's it's thinking about every possible thing in advance. And for example, when I work with the registrants, even the easy things sometimes that I know shouldn't go wrong, but could go wrong, we always look at those too. Because it goes right once and you think, well, that's good. However, in, in under a different set of circumstances, it can be a totally different thing. So I think you have to anticipate anything which could possibly go awry and quickly have a little intellectual exercise. How do I prevent that? Mm. How do I go about preventing that situation from happening? Mm. Mm. Um, and then you take out your little toolbox and you pick out the tool that you need and you quickly mm. adjust and you mm. say, okay, now I think that should be okay. Mm. If, it do if it doesn't go right, it's not my fault. It's just human error. Mm. And that's a normal mm. thing, operator sure. error. Sometimes we just do things that don't, mm. you know. But if you know that you've really you have an awareness for what could happen and what should happen and mm. you are meticulous in your preparation i think this really then you have a pretty good chance of mm. success mm. but i think preparation is everything we often think oh you know by now you know okay i'm a famous organist or something and i you know i'm teaching people how to play the organ and whatever but that doesn't mean that things won't go wrong because they certainly will so you can never be too sure you can never take anything for granted. You always have to prepare meticulously, which is why I was here until four in the morning last <laughs> night, right? So, because it's worth it. Every mm. every time you you get on an organ bench in front of an audience, you're an ambassador for the instrument. Mm. We need we need people to hear meaningful and really good organ playing. Mm. And uh, there's no opportunity when you're in front of people to play when you shouldn't be on your A game. Mm. Thanks for doing it for us. Oh, it's my uh. pleasure. <laughs> so, glad to have you. And yeah, uh, thank see you. you soon. Thank you, I appreciate mm -hmm. it. Great to be here. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be back here at the Haga Church, where a few years ago I actually played my first recital here at Rittenborg. I love these two instruments, and today I look forward to particularly exploring the wonderful mid-19th century Marcuson organ, which stands in the back of this church. As we explore this theme about the organ as a musical mechanical marvel, um, it's quite funny that one of our best quotes about the instrument, which is from Mozart himself, that in my eyes and ears the organ is the queen of instruments, also comes from a composer who left us no specific music for that particular uh, instrument, but rather for an organ-related instrument played by mechanical means, um, works written in the last years of his life. And in fact, he wasn't so enthusiastic about writing any of these works. He once wrote a letter to his wife saying how depressing it was to have to write music for an infantile box of whistles, as he called them. But nonetheless, he wrote two of his most extraordinary uh, compositions for the last two years of his life, 1790 and 1791. 
for such an infantile box of whistles. Luckily, we have behind us an instrument which is not an infantile box of whistles, but rather a really magnificent uh, quasi-orchestral organ in many senses, and that will offer a different perspective on a piece of music conceived as a sort of funeral ode to a fallen uh, Austrian field marshal whose uh, casket was shown in a sort of invented mausoleum in the, inside of a wax museum in Vienna in the year 1790. And at every hour, um, the, the clock would, would play a piece of music, some sort of funereal music. And you can imagine in this work, this Adagio Allegro in F minor, this funeral music as bookends, very melancholy, full of pathos and chromaticism, and then perhaps played by a street quartet, and then in the middle, a sort of nostalgic elegy to these more glorious days on the battlefield using the heraldic trumpets of the organ. This music comes to us from a time when one of the first international organ virtuosos begin, began to travel Europe in the 1780s and 90s, a very eccentric man by the name of uh, Abbe Vogler. And in fact, he was very active here in Sweden, particularly in Stockholm, and had quite an influence on Swedish organ building, Danish organ building, and eventually his ideas about creating a new type of organ, a simplified organ sound, the so-called simplificationssystem, which really thought of the organ as a new type of orchestra control as the Hebrew. All of these ideas would rapidly sweep across Europe and spawn a new type of early romantic organ. And one, uh, one organ builder who was very influenced by Fogler's ideas, and roughly contemporary with Mozart, was Barkison. And we can hear a lot of those influences in this organ. And we'll hear that already in a very clear way in Mozart, in a more orchestral way in a small uh, chamber-like work of Beethoven. And then we'll move to music by Felix Mendelssohn Bartoli, in fact, where the program begins. Mendelssohn took his first organ lessons on an organ which was rebuilt by the Abbe Vogler in the Marienkirche in Berlin. And so this quasi-orchestral concept of sound would also be very familiar to him. So when you hear this first movement of the third sonata in A major, you can imagine it's a bit like the famous second symphony of Mendelssohn, the Lobgesang symphony, with horns in contrast with the full orchestra. And then a fugue which begins, a chorale fugue with most tiefer note in the pedal, out of the depths, I cry to thee. Um, the, low, the low, most gravitation stops with 32 foot, evoking this very dark imagery. And gradually, as this piece builds and creates a crescendo, we arrive again at the full orchestral sound of the instrument. And then taking this, this modern, marvelous um, idea of the new orchestral organ yet to a new height, we come to the 1850s, just a decade after Mendelssohn wrote his still relatively classical six organ sonatas. Franz Liszt, on the other hand, looked for new horizons to, to broaden the, uh, the idea of organ sound and organ composition and abandoned the kind of traditional sonata and symphony forms, rather going for tone poem, or the tone poem as an alternative to the symphonic form. And we hear in his odd nose a magnificent essay, um, exactly constructed in this way, taking the theme from a colleague's opera, The Prophet by Meyerbeer, and using that as a little bit of cell to spawn a magnificent tapestry of sound um, that lasts for well over 30 minutes. It was the first time this had ever been attempted, 
and achieved. And he did this on a marvelous new modern, modern organ full of new sonic possibilities in the Meersburg Dome, an instrument which precedes the organ behind you only by about seven years. So we can really experience in a certain way the sound world of Franz Liszt also very compellingly in this room. When Liszt uh, was active in uh, years of war with his student, uh, Alexander Winterberger, who premiered the work, um, there was a, quite a reaction to this piece when it was first heard. The old establishment is still very much rooted in the 18th century principles of organ playing, according to the review, cried bloody murder for a desecration of the old classical instrument. Um, and uh, on the other hand, the pupils of Liszt and the students of Liszt, who were very much interested in these more forward-looking ideas, thought that it was a watershed moment for the organ becoming a performance instrument, like the piano and the concert hall or other uh, instruments you might see on stage. So whatever you feel about that, you'll have it in be able to create your own impression listening to the way we see this progression of the early orchestral sounds, nascent already from the late 18th century, coming to full fruition um, in the list of those fantasy. So I look forward to sharing these marvelous sounds produced by such a spectacular mechanical instrument here, built by Marcus in music, by Mozart, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and Liszt. Thank you.